All right, everybody, welcome back to the Millennial Sales Podcast. This is a show where young salespeople come to upgrade their personal development, advance in their careers, and get after it. Uh, I'm your host, Tommy Tahoe. This is episode 301. It's Tuesday. We're in the beginning of March. We're getting into it, and I'm stoked. And why am I so excited? Because we've got a legend. When I say legend, I mean legend in the building today for the podcast. Mark Roberge, um, absolutely one of the best guests that we've had on this show uh, in the 300 plus episodes that we've got. If you didn't, if you don't know who Mark is, um, you may be living under a sales rock. He's currently the managing director at Stage Two Capital. He's a professor at Harvard Business School. He was the former CRO over at HubSpot, and uh, that's where we spend a lot of our story today, a lot of our conversation around his days at HubSpot. Uh, he started as one of the first hires. He was the first sales hire. I think he was uh, employee number three or four. Um, and so he grew the company from zero dollars in revenue to over $100 million to over 10,000 customers. And from that first employee to over 400 employees across multiple countries. He wrote the sales acceleration formula, uh, breaking down how he did that, um, which is a classic sales book that you should absolutely check out especially if you are uh, in or, or trying to get into sales leadership. Mark talked about his journey, talked about the days of going to school, uh, going to grad school, business school, you know, how he started at HubSpot, some of his entrepreneurial pursuits, um, his interest in, um, you know, faith and in psychology and, and in a lot of different things that have helped him, you know, wellness and, and spirituality that, that help him stay focused. So it's a great episode. It's a great guest. You're going to learn a lot. Um, I hope you do. If you do enjoy this podcast, one ask from you, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a review, tell a friend about it, and uh, make sure you follow what I'm doing over on LinkedIn, Tom Alamo. I'm posting every single day. Without further ado, let's get it. The man, the myth, the legend, Mark Roberts. Let's go. All right, next up on the Millennial Sales Podcast, we've got sales legend, fellow Bostonian, Mark Roberge. Mark, how are you? Good, Tom. How are you? I'm doing well, man. Doing well. Excited to, uh, excited to have you on and have this conversation. Yeah, it's, it's going to be great. Um, so a lot of folks have certainly heard of you um, from your HubSpot journey, see what you're doing at stage two, read your book, things like that. But I'd love to take the opportunity to really learn about the early days um, of your sales career. So just from sure. doing some, some LinkedIn stalking, I saw uh, straight out of school into Accenture um, into the mm -hmm. consulting world. So just curious, like, where was your, where was your head at, at that point? Yeah. Was it just like pick the, you know, a well-paying, fairly safe job coming out of school or, or where was your head kind of coming out of college? Yeah, it's a good question, Tom. I do talk a lot about to my students these days, cause I was curious about that journey. Um, a lot of it was very context driven on where the business economy and ecosystem was like then. Um, you know, if you even take a step before that, growing up, I was always like really good in math, got good, really good grades in math. So um, my grandparents and parents would have always told me I was going to be an engineer ever since I was like seven and thought an engineer drove trains, you know, yeah. and, and then like. Just that guy ended up majoring in that, doing mechanical. I, I really wish I did computer science, but I just gravitated toward mechanical at the time. And then what was, was weird about that was um, this is in the mid 90s. Entrepreneurship was not a thing. Like it's hard to conceptualize that in, in you know, 
2022, but it's like no one in my undergrad college was talking about becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah. It was like kind of a thing for like bored rich people, you know, like, yeah. and, and so, um, so that, that's why I didn't kind of do the startup thing, but, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I was interviewing for internships and, and the mechanical engineering internships were honestly like a bunch of like, and I don't want to offend anyone, but it was like, it, it was a lot of like aerospace and like, you know, manufacturing jobs in the middle of the woods in a random state, you know, <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. and then Accenture was like, come learn to code. And like, we'll bill you out a big hour, you know, uh, big billion hours and live in New York city. And like, it was just, I don't know, it contrasted quite a bit. So I got like the sole internship offer from my school at the firm and then joined full time. And then that kind of, you know, you didn't ask, but like about two years later, obviously like during that journey, the late nineties happened, which was like just the crazy dot com boom and bust. And during the boom part, um, you know, I just watched everything in the papers was about, and you know, the news was about, uh, uh, you know, all these internet startups and, and I was finally like actually staffed on one at Accenture mm -hmm. and I was, it was this one up in New Hampshire and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is awesome. Like it was just like people weren't wearing suits. You can dress however you wanted. You can work at however you worked hard, but as many hours, you know, whenever you wanted. And like, you felt like you were in and there was upside and people were making money on their stock options. And, um, you were changing the world, you know what I mean? Like you were in, and I was like, this is like my passion. And, and I jumped ship and joined a, a mobile startup Vetro that's on the, on the site, on the, on my LinkedIn profile, which was like a couple of Accenture partners that started it as a consulting company, a consulting company raised venture capital. That's how we, we had no idea how entrepreneurship <laughs> worked back then, but that was kind of the, the journey there. And I'm curious, so you're at, at Vetra for a little bit, like, did you see immediate success? Obviously you're a super intelligent guy, but like, what were the early days of, of that sales career like no, no, before good. the day SDRs, right? Yeah. No, I mean, it was like, honestly, and I don't think, you know, Roger Desai, the founder remains a good friend. He wrote my um, recommendations at MIT when I went to business school. And I don't think he'd mind me saying like, the firm had no idea how to sell. <laughs> like, I don't think yeah. the ecosystem knew how to sell. I mean, they had structured it like a consulting company. And honestly, looking back on the first couple of years, there was so much work created internally to structure the organization and such a small percentage was actually spent talking to the market. It was, yeah, I don't know. It was just the days. It was the dot-com craze and people were just, getting money. I don't think we knew what we were doing as entrepreneurs. And I, I don't even think I named my role a sales role, even though I was out on some sales calls. So I was kind of like what you'd probably call like a sales engineer slash account manager at the time. Maybe engagement manager was the right idea because we we're doing more projects. And so I got a little taste of it, but I didn't even think about myself doing sales, but I did think about myself doing entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And you know, that, that company went through the boom bus, right? We, I think I joined as number 15. We scaled up to 200. Six months later, we laid everyone else back down to 15. And I hung on for a couple of years and kind of had a feeling that this was not going to be 
a success, but this career pivot to entrepreneurship was awesome. A passion. Mm -hmm. I never wanted to look back. I never wanted to go work for a big company again. And I decided to go um, to business school. You know, I was kind of like, okay, how do I work this entrepreneurship game? Like, yeah, I can go to another startup. And if it does become the next Google, that will be huge, but that's not likely. Uh, or if I can get into a really good business school, that's good at entrepreneurship. This is kind of like a now or never. I'm not going to do that when I'm 39. You know, I'm like 25 right now. So let me see if I can get into a good business school and, and study entrepreneurship. Do you feel, I've heard um, mixed reviews from people, especially sales people and sales leaders around business school. Um, do you <laughs> feel like that was an instrumental part of, you know, the rest of your career in, in setting you up the right way? Huge. If so how? Huge. And it's not for everyone. I think it's a fair assessment, Tom. If you, I think in general, if you love what you're doing and you're thinking about going to business school so that you can go back to what you're doing, that's probably not a good idea. I'd probably take a hundred thousand dollars and go on a sick vacation for a year. <laughs> yeah. you know, like, I mean, that's kind of what you're doing basically. Um, so, but yeah, if you, if you want to like, evolve your career or transition your career if you're in consulting and you want to go into entrepreneurship if you're in banking and you want to go into product management you know if you like if you're looking to do a, a career change in a career that is a feeder from business school that's a very good reason and another good reason is if you can get into a school that is a tier above where you went to undergrad that mm -hmm. is a good reason so I, I, got, I loved my undergrad experience. Lehigh was an amazing school. I learned awesome skills that are, are you, you wouldn't, you'd be surprised how many are embedded through many of the frameworks that I teach today. I did get an MIT undergrad and didn't go. Uh, that's kind of a different story. And, you know, I, I think even, you know, I think Lehigh would understand that like MIT is in a different tier and I got into MIT and, you know, that, that's a contributing factor to it. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, I just, I mean, I started like seven companies when I was there. You know what I mean? I was like, yeah. I was just like helping startups that were started by alumni. I was teaming up with other students from China and all these great places on learning about those ecosystems. Um, and, you know, so that it, it was a, it was a great move for me. Mm. And so was Pospot just the one of those seven mm. or eight that you started that, that it happened was. to stick? It was. So, and it kind of dwarfed with HubSpot in a way. Um, so in the, at MIT, like a lot of business schools, the first year, the first semester of the four semesters is required. So you take the basic like economic strategy, finance, or, and then the second semester is when you start to take your electives. And I was just like all into entrepreneurship. So I took this class taught by Howard Anderson, who's the founder of Yankee Group and the founder of, I think one of the co-founders of Battery Ventures. And it was called New Enterprises. It was all about entrepreneurship. And um, the first day of class, every student uh, wrote up a two-page business idea. So there was like 60 students. And we had to read them that night and vote on our favorite two. And whoever got the most votes, the top 12, would present their ideas at the next class. And um, everyone that didn't get picked would join 
the company, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like kind of work on the business plan while we went through yep. the class. And Pospot was my idea and I got picked and I was like, this was like, um, you know, Facebook wasn't even around then. This was like MySpace, classmates.com were kind of the big ones. And it was right at the beginning of the social networking, social media wave. And I was just so intrigued by the fact that you could build a website and everybody else would build the content. I mean, I know that's like how the winner at work today, but we had no <laughs> idea. And I was right. doing all these research papers on it. In fact, I was introduced to um, one of my, uh, I later TA'd the class and one of my students, the students of the class said, oh, you should meet my boyfriend, Eduardo. He started a company in Harvard with Mar this guy, Mark Zuckerberg called Facebook. <laughs> If you're, if you're studying social, and I was like, all right, cool. And I went up there and Mark Zuckerberg was busy, but Eduardo came out and we had drinks in Harvard Yard. And he told me they, they were just launching, launching their second school. Um, I think it was American University. And then like, I was texting Reed Hoffman when he was kind of like starting this thing called LinkedIn. It was like a crazy, like, thing. oh, let's, let's, I was like, I got to do this in like the pet space where if people could exchange dog sitting, which exists today, I think like Rover's kind of like that, but it was just like, that was putting it way over the edge into the sharing economy. And mm -hmm. so it was like an idea that I think society wasn't ready for. And I just executed terribly. Like we just, we just didn't know how to build these things, you know? So anyway, that was my idea. I got picked and I, um, it was funny too, because the person that presented after me, who was also in the class that got picked, was Dharmesh Shah, the founder of co-founder of HubSpot, and his idea was yeah. HubSpot. Um, so I remember him going after me, and he had the HubSpot logo up there, and it was a kind of a different idea back then. Um, but uh, we became really good friends. Like we we really hit it off. I think I sat next to him on the first day, and um, and we would like grab you know dinner or or lunch quite often, and and then when uh that the summer between the two years, I, I was able to convince some investors to give me a million bucks of seed capital to, to hire an engineering team and build out PawSpot. And Dharmesh heard about it. He's like, I would love to invest. Um, mm. uh, Cause he had made some money on an exit prior to school. And he's like, I have one, um, one contingency though. I, I really like, you know, working with you. Um, would you, like work for me half a day a week on Thursdays on HubSpot. Um, and you can have the rest of the 80 hours a week to do a hub to PawSpot. And obviously I'll pay you as a consultant. I'm sure you could use the money, you know, as you're going through this. And I'm like, yeah, that'd be awesome. And so that's how mm -hmm. I, that's how PawSpot happened. That's kind of what it was. And that's how I got introduced to HubSpot. So when, when PawSpot eventually, you know, closed its doors, it was, <clears throat> more of the the natural conclusion for you after spending probably a few years at that point, like consulting at HubSpot to to go over there. Yeah, um, did you read? And yeah, I don't know. I've talked about it a little bit. Sorry, I cut you off. Is that what you're asking about? Is how did that happen? Or yeah, yeah, and just I, I'd love to hear one just to confirm that. But two, yeah. I think a lot of folks um, that are interested in early stage sales are wonder, you know, they wonder where to start. Like they wonder yeah. what type of yeah, company to that's join. That's a good question. Yep. Um, and so I'd love to hear your take. Yeah, on yeah, that's a really good question. General, yeah, it was luck, honestly, for me. Um, yeah. So um, it was just luck on having sat next to Darmesh. It was luck on him 
investing and asking me to be a consultant. And then, uh, yes, I, I did run the company my second year of business school. I hired a couple of great engineers, awesome guys, awesome, awesome people. And, um, and then I didn't go through the recruiting process and I, I ran the company for the year after school. Um, and, uh, you know, my, uh, it was, it was kind of, and I was doing the, still doing the day a week with HubSpot. Um, and you know, about like, I don't know, like six months into like me working with Darmash, he, he was like, Hey, I've been working. There's a guy that kind of helped me figure out the HubSpot idea. He went into venture capital for a little bit, but it doesn't sound like it's working out. His name is Brian Halligan. And turns out he wants to come and um, Darmesh was like, I promised my wife I'd never run a company again because the last time I was so miserable. And so I think Brian has agreed to run the company and be my co-founder. And I, and I was like, oh, that's cool. And and I met Brian and and then he emailed me after and was like, hey, I, I like you. I'm glad you're on our payroll. And um, however, I know you've been kind of helping Darmesh with the strategy. Um, I'd like to reorient all of your time to sales. So like, I think we're good on the strategy. Can you just go out and try to sign up customers every week and every month that we have your time? So that's how I got into sales. It was just like not intentional. I was in business school knowing I wanted to be on the revenue side, but I was torn between sales and marketing. Um, You know, I think I liked sales because it was like belly to belly where the action was, especially in B2B software, my background was they tended to make more money, which is important to me because, you know, I knew I'd be the, the family provider. And I liked marketing because honestly, the MBA at the time prepared you more for that because it was a very much more data driven thing. I think that's changed in the last you know, 20 years or so. But you know, that's how I got into sales. And I, you know, I think in that six or seven months of working with them while I was running PostBot after uh, Brian had repositioned me, I think between Brian and I, we sold like 40 or 50 customers um, for HubSpot. And, and yes, um, now we're about a year out of business school. Um, uh, my, you know, I was, I was married to my kid's mom and, and she got pregnant, uh, wasn't working. Um, we decided to move into her parents' house while we had our first child. And then had, then like a couple months later, got pregnant again, <laughs> which is not, I would not recommend doing it that quickly, but uh, it wasn't intentional, but Zane is upstairs and now he's 14 and a blessing, you know, so it's all good. But um, so then I had to buy a house to put these babies in. So like, it was pretty stressful. I think there is like a learning there. It was like, yeah, there's never the right timing to do a startup. And I had a hundred thousand dollars in loans, no money, a single provider to the family, a baby, a mortgage and a new baby on the way. <laughs> and yeah. I was doing a seed funded startup. And yeah, I just, I just couldn't get the series A for a spot. And fortunately, Brian Halligan had sent me an email saying, uh, you know, he didn't know, he didn't know that, but he's really good at these provocative emails. And he said, uh, you should quit your startup and come run this, like build out the sales team here. I really like what you've been doing on the sales side, um, you know, and we're about to do a series A. So come on, we, you know, they had hired, they had hired Mike Volpe as head of marketing and that was it, it was the three of them. And they're like, you should just be the fourth person and build out sales. And so I, I was kind of thankful for that moment because I thought I was going to have to like hang it up as an entrepreneur and, and 
go back to a big company, yeah. which I really is not my passion, but I had responsibility. And I was psyched when he said that. I didn't tell him that because I pretended like my startup was doing awesome so I could negotiate yeah. a good contract. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I, I honestly thought I'd just be there for four months and collect a salary and stabilize myself. And then nine years later, you know, we have 2000 people at the company and we're running the bell on the New York Stock Exchange going public, which that whole ride was not like all fun and games. It was one of the most stressful things I ever did, but it wasn't what I thought we would be doing. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, what would you, you, I mean, you talk to early stage companies, I imagine all day long, all week long in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, investing, advising, things like that. A lot of the folks listening to this probably aren't in the position where they're investing in early stage companies, but they might be looking to, to work there. Um, would just be curious, like, what would you, if you were starting your career over now as a salesperson and you wanted to get in early stage to the next HubSpot or, or wherever, um, what would you be looking at? Would it be, yeah. a, would it be the product? Would it be feeling out the founders? Yeah, definitely. Like yeah, Tom, that, that's good. And thank you. Cause I forgot through that whole rambling that I didn't even answer your original question, which is like, you know, <laughs> so you the whole point was about. like the, yeah, the core, the whole point was I got lucky, right. With HubSpot. I think some of the, some of the underlying themes, I think that are really good takeaways there are, I don't, I don't, I don't even know if there is an entrepreneur out there that has never failed. You know, from jobs to Musk to, you know, like everyone, even Drew Houston, like that was not his first startup. He was, I was, he was with us at MIT. His first startup was Accolade, his SAT company. So I think that's like the whole point is like entrepreneurship is not like start one company and like either sales it succeeds and fails and then you if it fails you just go back to a regular job no it's it's like it's riddled with failure it's the yeah. majority and it's like that's kind of the difference is whether you you look at that failure as a learning moment and and move forward with each one and i think eventually you'll succeed i i i can't i don't know if i can think of someone who's been in the startup ecosystem for like many 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 decades and didn't at least taste one in success you know and hopefully there's yeah. more so that's one thing. The other thing is directly to your question. Um, product market fit is poor, poorly understood. And that's what I'd be looking for is product market fit. And what I would be looking for is how engaged and successful the existing customers are with the product. I'm mm -hmm. very like I've, I've put a lot of research and rigor and a lot of data points behind that answer it's a pretty unique answer if you talk to other folks other people big market team technology you know all that kind of stuff that's important and you should do that too but that's like one thing i'll often say is like go find a company with just um you know a lot of customer engagement a lot of you know a big setup rates big usage rates big retention rates and i don't even care that much about revenue generation um, cause that's your job is to come in. Yeah. And that's why like, I love product led growth today. I would go to a PLG company if I was starting my career, I would go find a company that has like, um, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 weekly active users, daily active users, and they're growing and they use it every day and they haven't made a dime yet. Oh, that's a mm. dream. I remember <laughs> when, uh, Lauren Patterford was, uh, the first sales leader at Shopify. 
I remember him because I used to mm-hmm. take these, uh, I had an hour commute to HubSpot. So I would take a call from young sales leaders or entrepreneurs to and from work when we, after we had like taken off and, and people knew about us. And I remember the call with Lauren because he was like asking me all these, I'm like, how many, you can give, get a feel for where you're at. How many salespeople do you have? He's like, I have five salespeople. I'm going to hire two more this quarter. And I'm like, okay, cool. What are the quote is? And he had all these questions and I was picturing a particular company, right? Size company. And then I'm like, by the way, um, how much revenue, how many customers do you guys have? And he's like 75,000. And I was like, what? And I was like, how much revenue do you have? He's like a hundred million. And I'm like, dude, you have 75,000 customers and a hundred million in revenue and you have five reps going on seven. I'm like, dude, <laughs> you were, I was like, dude, you are going to be so rich after this one. <laughs> it's, sure enough. What is that company worth? Like $50 billion. So that's what I would, that's what I'd be looking. And we could talk later if you want about my bullishness about product like growth, but that's what I'd be looking at. You know, like yep. that the ability to create that, that would be a lot of fun as a salesperson. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, and just maybe as a quick, before we get to, um, some rapid fires, if we stick on the, the topic of, of PLG, maybe you can just give a quick for folks that aren't as familiar, like rundown on why that is so interesting to you. And, and maybe just like a, a quick high level definition as to how you think of it. Sure. Um, yeah. So definition would be that the customer can experience value from your product without talking to a human. Yep. They can go to your website, download your product and an experience value. So I, I would loop like free trials in there too. I don't like those as much. I like freemium, like a model where it's like, you can use it forever as long as you're below a certain tier. Why is it so disruptive is like, um, it's, it's on par in my opinion with SaaS's disruption on the software ecosystem. You know, that was a big deal. A lot, a lot of what's happening in PLG today reminds me of what was happening in SaaS in 2006. And, um, the, um, and, and so, uh, uh, I think it's just not as pervasive. Like I think SaaS applied to like many, many different categories. And, um, I don't think PLG provides is applies to as many, like for example, you kind of need a low time and effort to value use case to start like a workday disrupting HR systems. Yeah. I'm not sure there's a PLG angle on there. You know, it's really hard to create sustainable moats in many software categories. Um, and these days, the customer is trained to gravitate towards little friction, right? And so if you have one company, let's say, going through it, going through like a free trial, like a demo request to an inside sales team, then okay, like, and then the you know, the fact that you're passing to an inside sales team, you're opening price. It's got to be at least like what three to five thousand a year or something yep. to be able to pay for the cost of the sales per team. And then you compare that to another similar product where you can just like download it and use it for free. You know, it's like apples to apples. Even if I've heard great things about the five thousand dollar a year product, I'm probably just gonna like try the free one as a category. And so it's very hard to like undercut that. In fact, any category where they're starting out with an MQL fed you an inside sales team and opening price of 5,000, the PLQ, PQL attack, uh, PLG attacker that starts free 
has a huge advantage. And, and, and when you build up the, the MQL model to a couple million, there's almost no going back. It's very difficult to basically disrupt yourself with a freemium offering. So it has such a nice disruptor. And remember what we talked about, like what should I be looking for? Lots of free usage, like mm-hmm. weekly active users. You're right away honed in on that North Star metric, as opposed to a lot of other software businesses where they come out of the gate, let's try to grow revenue as fast as possible. And they have a leaky bucket and they don't have a lot of customer usage. Like freemium forces you to have product market fit first. So yeah, for the categories that applies, I'm, I'm very bullish on it. You know, at stage two capital where, you know, that's a big, you know, that's part of our, we'd look for those attributes. We're not only PLG, but we do love the PLG attackers in, in every category. I love it. I love it. Um, all right, let me hit you with some rapid fires, Mark. Let the audience know mm-hmm. a little more about you. Um, first up, we're big book people on the pod. Um, would love to hear any books that have influenced you. Um, really, any genre is fair game. It doesn't have to be a, a, a sales or business book, but it, it certainly mm-hmm. can be. Anything that's influenced you as a person or for your all career? All right, sure. Yeah, I'm a very spiritual person, so autobiography yogi. I'm also a big yogi, so that was the one. I got turned on to it because... Um, when I read Steve Jobs, um, bio, uh, it said that that was the only book he read, he read every year of his life. So I had to check it out and there's some really good, um, life lessons in there. Love it. Um, how about other ways that you like to learn? I'm not sure if you're a podcast person, if you Mm -hmm. check out particular newsletters or blogs or whatever, YouTube, whatever you, uh, whatever you like to do, anything stand out to you that you've been getting into? Yeah, I'm a big, uh, you know, I've done them all. I've read books, I've read blogs, I've read, you know, I listen to podcasts, I listen, I do all that stuff. I think the blogs for me probably drive the biggest learning because you can like, I think every great book of 250 page pages has been nicely summarized into a two page blog article somewhere. And so just efficiency of time, you get the good stuff and you can move so quickly as opposed to committing yourself to a book. So I do like just being engaged on a regular basis in the social media sphere and, and the blogosphere to learn. I also like just general old school, like talking to smart people. Like, you know, I'm very fortunate that every year I have 200 students at Harvard. I, I talk to 2000 amazingly smart entrepreneurs. Um, I get to talk to like podcast hosts like yourself. who are on the cutting edge of things. And that's, and I go out there and speak and I, I challenge people to challenge my ideas, which I love. So just the general old school digital networking, I just learn a ton from that. Mm, I love that. Um, how about what goes on in the uh, headphones music wise for you, Mark? Everything. I, I love like the modern, like whatever's, you know, up and coming. I don't know. The last the past year I've been listening to like heat waves and 24 K and uh, you know, kid Leroy, but I also like, um, you know, some of the, the real old school classics, you know, I was a big Pearl Jam fan growing up and love Bob Marley, love the Grateful Dead. I'm kind of all over the place. I dabble. I play the trumpet growing up, move to the harmonica, dabble with the guitar. I'm probably going to learn the ukulele next. I suck as a musician. It's my little side thing <laughs> I do by myself, but I do enjoy a good, some good music. I've caught uh, an itch to, I've never learned an instrument, but I've caught an itch to try to learn how to play the drums. So uh, that's, nice. that's maybe that's awesome. maybe a, a side project I have coming up. Yeah, just do it for fun. It's cool. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned yoga, you mentioned uh, playing music, but anything else that you do outside of work um, that helps you recharge or is it mainly those two things? Um, I run a lot as well. So I run every other day and I do yoga every other day. 
in the season here in New England, I play a lot of golf, uh, which is a lot of fun with my buddies. Um, and I'm uh, a very dedicated dad. Um, you know, I try to leave a lot of space for that. I coach my kids' teams all the time, try to try to be pretty involved in their lives. And I'm a deacon at the local church, Old North Church. So all that adds up to a busy schedule. Yeah, that's a full life right there. Um, <laughs> are there any are any mantras or quotes or philosophies that you tend to live by? Oh, yeah. Or Sounds really like? Yeah, I'll throw you two. Um, yeah, I do. This is uh, part of my daily prayers. Uh, I do say, I, th- I strive to replace ego with humility, greed uh, with service, and fear with faith. Um, and another one I live, try to live by is, I have been given twice I deserve and taken twice, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, given twice that I deserve and taken, uh, <laughs> this is so bad. I've taken twice that I deserve and given half that I'm able, but haven't many of us, and every day is an opportunity to close that gap. So those mm. are some of the things I live by. Are those both um, passages from, from no, the Bible? No, just or, things or... I've come up with. Things I come I up it. with. My favorite Bible is Romans 12. It's, really, it. it's, about, it's a lot about like understanding your unique individuality, individuality as your purpose in life. This isn't a, a rapid fire question, but w- wouldn't you say, uh, it seems like the answer is obviously yes for you, but that getting deeper in touch with, your spiritual side, it sounds like both with religion and, and both there's obviously a spiritual side to, to yoga um, has helped you, you know, obviously in your life, but even in your career as well um, to stay more balanced and oh, humble. And yeah, definitely. And it's not for everyone, you know, but it's yeah. like, I'm happy to speak openly about it. And, you know, lots of times people don't bring that in the business world and I'm not trying to like convert anyone or anything. It's just, you ask the question um, and I'm fine being open about it. It's just, it's just not for everyone. But I think like, you know, hey, try yoga out for sure, and and don't be afraid to to uh, dive into some of the Sanskrit meanings behind things. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, my last rapid fire for you, Mark. Who would you want to come see next on the Millennial Sales Podcast? I'll have to pick someone from the portfolio. You got to. Um. Yeah, yeah, I know, like. Maybe someone over at Sales Impact Academy, like Paul Fifield, um, their okay. CEO. I think they're doing some really cool stuff. Um, so sorry, it's like having 26 children and having to pick one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love all our founders, but I think when it comes to what you're what you're talking about, that's probably a really good one for for you yeah. to kind of give. It. Yeah, I've I've met Paul. I've met a couple of folks over there. He'd be a great one. Um, Mark, want to be mindful of your time. I appreciate yeah. you coming on, man. Yeah, and so, um, Tom, can I also talk ahead. real quick about um, just a quick plug on stage two, if that's okay? Absolutely. So, as we went through the career story, we, you know, some of you may know that I went off to be a professor at Harvard Business School and built out the sales curriculum, and that dwarfed into um, building out the first venture capital firm running back by sales and marketing lead and customer success and RevOps leaders. So uh, we're backed by 300 you know, go-to-market executives from the best software, you know, the most valuable software companies like Snowflake and Asana, Atlassian and Salesforce and all that kind of stuff. But the opportunities for your audience are twofold. One is um, we do have an accelerator program that we have open applications for now. Um, And, uh, you know, these are, you know, just after product development, we're giving $100,000 to each of them and put them through a 10-week course. And those folks I mentioned, like the CRO of Zoom, the president of Salesforce, 
uh, the CMO of a HubSpot. We're all instructors in the course last year. So we got some really great legends to expose you to if you want to do that. And then we also have an emerging leader syndicate program where we teach folks um, how to think about investing uh, early in your careers. Mm-hmm. So you can look at our stage two capital website and learn that as well. So if there's, sorry for the plug in, um, but I do think I wouldn't be doing them if I didn't think they were value adding to the ecosystem. No, that's, that's amazing. So the best place to find both those is stage two capital.com. Yep. Stage two capital.com. There's an accelerator tab and then an emerging leaders tab. Awesome. Um, and then for everyone else, go find Mark, uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, he posts some good content on there, connect with him. Um, anywhere else we can send them or, or that's the main spot. That's the best place. That's the best cool. place. Yeah. I try to be cool. reactive there. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate you coming on, man. This is great. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for checking out that episode. Start of the year. Let's kick some ass. Again, one of my goals for this show is to get as many subscribers uh, wherever you're listening here uh, on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, et cetera. Subscribe, leave a review, and then hit me up on uh, LinkedIn, Tom Alemo, uh, or any of my other socials at Tommy Tahoe. Look forward to connecting with you there. Peace.